The public, uh, I think, at large, at first, saw this as, oh, okay, now Bitcoin's done because Facebook can do it bigger, faster, better. Um, not understanding the differentiators. This is actually an opportunity to differentiate because these pretenders can't do what Bitcoin does. I'm Tor Bear from Enigma, and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralize This presented by Enigma. I'm Tor Bear. I'm the head of growth for Enigma, and we are returning from an extended summer hiatus while we worked heads down towards the release of our protocol. And I am proud to say that we are extremely close to finally launching our network testnet, but I am even more proud to introduce my guest today, Mr. Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Andreas is a best-selling author, a speaker, an educator, and he's one of the world's foremost Bitcoin and open blockchain experts. In 2014, he wrote one of the foundational books of the blockchain space, Mastering Bitcoin. He is also the author of The Internet of Money, as well as his most recent book, Mastering Ethereum. He is widely respected in the blockchain space, not only for his knowledge and his ceaseless curiosity about decentralized technologies, but also for his extreme generosity in teaching others. On this episode, Andreas talks about how the public's perception of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies has shifted over the past decade, how Libra and centralized digital currencies will affect open blockchains as well as our human rights, and how people inside and outside the decentralization space can and should work together to fight these growing threats. Andreas was one of my biggest influences as I was beginning to study Bitcoin and blockchain in 2014, so I'm thrilled to have this opportunity not only to learn from him directly, but also to share his voice with all of you. So without any further introduction, here is Andreas Antonopoulos. Andreas, welcome to Decentralize This. I've been looking forward to doing this episode for quite some time. Oh, thank you so much, Tor. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So I'm going to start this, even though you really require no introduction, we do start every show the same way, just in your own words, personally, professionally, 30 seconds. Who is Andreas Antonopoulos? Um, I'm a computer scientist who focuses on distributed systems and information security. And after uh, finding out about Bitcoin in 2012, switched my career to focus entirely on this technology. I've now written four books on the topic. And I uh, like to think of myself as an educator who makes uh, simple analogies to help people understand how this technology works, but also why it's important for society. That was a very concise and accurate self-definition. Uh, Thank you. I would say that you've done an enormous amount of writing and public speaking on these topics, and I consider that to be an incredible public good, uh, not just for you know the world at large, but for me personally. And, and you've taught a lot of people, including myself, about Bitcoin, Ethereum, other open blockchains and protocols, and there's a huge huge catalog of awesome things you've written and said and presented. And I'm sure that listeners can go on their own and lose themselves for hours after we're done kind of exploring all of that. But maybe it's 
uh, for that reason, because you have such a, a depth of study of the field and a depth of, of speaking and writing that you've done, that I really want to focus us today specifically on some of the things that have happened recently and where we stand in the present moment in the decentralization mm-hmm. space, because I feel like we're at a really, really critical inflection point and there's more scrutiny than ever uh, coming on digital currencies and blockchains and privacy and and other related topics, both both good and bad. Uh, so mm-hmm. my first question, how do you feel the broad public's understanding of Bitcoin and other digital currencies has evolved from when you began talking and writing about the subject earlier this decade? Like, what? take me through maybe at a, at a very 30,000 foot kind of level, what have been the biggest shifts in this evolution that you've seen? I think in the uh, early stages, it was very difficult to find anyone who had even heard of the word Bitcoin. And so therefore, every conversation started from a very basic uh, explanation of what this is. Um, and then moving from there, trying to explain, well, why why would anyone want this or need this? Um to this um, incredible hype that has happened over three bubble cycles, if you like, which is the characteristic growth pattern of this technology, um, where a lot more people have heard of it. So at this point, I think the word Bitcoin has firmly established itself in the zeitgeist. It's uh, mentioned in science fiction and TV shows regularly, either as uh, hacker money or uh, cool money by the geeks or activists. Um, and in many cases, some of that has captured the real essence of it. In other ways, people heard a lot more about the scare stories behind Bitcoin and it's uh, in the popular imagination being associated with nefarious activities, um, uh, shady people, criminals, um, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, I think one of the big, big inflections is when when Bitcoin first started, a lot of people did not really believe that this thing could be sustained that it had a future. So almost everyone who uh, grasped the importance or purpose of these technologies immediately anticipated there would be pushback from governments and then assumed that governments being all powerful entities, they would simply shut it down. So that narrative, together with the bubbles growing and bursting over time, has created this really interesting cognitive dissonance because people keep hearing, okay, Bitcoin's about to die or the crypto space is about to die or is dead or is collapsing. And then three or four months later, they hear about it again and they're like, oh, it's still around. After the fifth or sixth, oh, it's still around, that now becomes the narrative. I think that's a really interesting thing, which is the staying power of this technology, its ability to survive despite the fact that obviously some very powerful entities and people want it to disappear and hope and gleefully announce its imminent disappearance. The fact that it then 
refuses to <laughs> and stubbornly persists becomes the narrative. So by now, people are now beginning to understand that maybe it isn't something that can be shut down. And that then takes on a whole other level of lore, if you like. Uh, it creates a new mythology around it. I think that has become now part of the mythology of this technology. And of course, the repeated hype cycles have created kind of this group of uh, flamboyant, uh, nouveau riche uh, people who made money fast on on crypto and who flaunted that and then attracted more people who want to get into this get-rich-quick scheme, which has caused a lot of tears and pain because, you know, that's not going to happen uh, for the vast majority of people who try it. And as a result, um, there's a there's this kind of cycle of excitement and disappointment, uh, tales of riches and tales of catastrophe uh, tied into this. And you know, I, I don't think the the public or the mainstream public, if you like, yet know what to make of this. Um, almost everyone will immediately say, I've heard of it, but I don't really understand it. At the same time, it has developed this kind of mythical uh, feel to it where people don't understand it, but they know it's something special and weird and um, they ascribe all of these notions to it. Yeah, yeah. And and the way that you describe it, you make it sound like it's almost a, a self-fulfilling prophecy at some point where if, if it survives enough... Uh, fatal blows, or what are reported in the media as fatal blows, people start to associate this idea of sustainability or unkillability with Bitcoin so that the next time there is an existential threat, people begin to assume that maybe the threat isn't so existential. And what I think gets lost on people perhaps is it takes an awful lot of work and support each time to sustain Bitcoin and other open blockchains, even through these existential threats. I, I don't think that there's necessarily something magical about Bitcoin that makes it not die. Um, it's it's more like there's a there's a community of developers and, and miners and whomever else behind it that make Bitcoin not die. And every time it doesn't die, it does seem to me to get a little bit stronger, even when people say this threat is different, this time is different. Do, do you feel Absolutely. do you feel like though in the last year anything has really changed about that cuz there's been a lot let's say even since the beginning of 2019 uh that I would say and we'll get into some of it uh that I would say might pose a more existential threat not because somebody's going to shut down all digital currencies forever but maybe because we're starting to see some of the first centralized competitors do you yeah. feel like that trend is starting to make the public see Bitcoin or think about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies differently? I think, yes, I think uh, 2019 was the beginning of the era of pretenders. Um, I won't call them competitors because they're not competitors. The competitors really happened in the previous four years with the emergence of the many 
um, open public decentralized blockchains that try to either differentiate or copy Bitcoin's success and were competitors or rivals or at least copycats. And th those failed, really, I think, uh, to, to displace Bitcoin because the ones that were too close to its original function um, can't catch up. And the ones that are too different simply differentiate into um, something that can happily coexist. Now we're entering the era of pretenders because while everybody wants to take this mythology and lore of Bitcoin and ride its coattails by associating all of these characteristics that, that the public understands about Bitcoin or has heard about Bitcoin, um, by removing all of the um, characteristics that make it so, what they're really building is pretenders, because the essence of Bitcoin is decentralization. Uh, decentralization as a means to an end, and the, the end is to empower individuals and to create all of these um, characteristics of un uncensorability or censorship resistance, of um, unstoppability, of freedom of access, of openness, um, etc., and immutability, of course. Now the pretenders come along, and they're not decentralized, and they don't really have any of these capabilities, but they want to pretend they do. So this is now, it's not a challenge for Bitcoin per se. I think it, these pretenders represent a much bigger challenge to the status quo and the existing banking and financial system, because now it's going to be exposed uh, to competition from both sides of the spectrum, both uh, new innovative centralized startups and the whole zoo of decentralized technologies out there. But um, it's going to give an opportunity for people to start seeing the difference between centralized and decentralized. And that difference is going to become more and more glaring and obvious the, the more time goes by. At first, they look identical because at first, they're just a brochure and the brochure can say whatever it wants. But once you put these systems in practice, they, they hit the reality of global regulation and, and then suddenly the differences start showing. I think that's where we're going next. Yeah, let's name names. So let's talk about Libra. Because I listened to your talk that you gave, um, I think it was in Scotland, shortly after it was first announced. And you were talking mm -hmm. about what I what I referred to as the Zuckerberg in the room. And uh, mm -hmm. looked at Facebook's effort to launch their own digital currency, whether they want to call it theirs or not. It, it seems like they led the effort. And as you said at the time, and as you're saying now, it's, it's a brochure, right? It's not a live network. Uh, it's certainly not decentralized in any way as a white paper. Uh, but it might already be the most scrutinized white paper ever, at least by regulators at the time of its release. So what do you think – you're out talking to the public, right? What, what do you see them saying as a result of the announcement of Libra? What, what's their reaction? And then why do you think Facebook is doing it at all? Like why put themselves out there? like this and and take this massive risk there must be something huge in it for them right yeah absolutely 
so the public, uh, I think, at large, at first, saw this as, oh, okay, now Bitcoin's done because Facebook can do it bigger, faster, better. Um, not understanding the differentiators, and of course, that's that's why I think, you know, this is actually an opportunity to differentiate because these pretenders can't do what Bitcoin does. I made some predictions um, in June when I made this talk. And I am actually surprised at how quickly these predictions came true. So I made some very specific predictions. I made some predictions that this would be immediately resisted by countries that had uh, a very great need to manipulate their currency, places like India. Um, it was not even two weeks before India announced that they would ban it. Um, and then I also said that as soon as the regulators and the lawyers got their teeth in this, that they would immediately depart from the white paper and start changing the parameters because what's being proposed in the white paper cannot be global, open, borderless, neutral, censorship resistant and immutable. You know, the characteristics of open public blockchains that I've talked about many times. And almost immediately that happened. But I was actually surprised by how much resistance they kicked up. Um, central bankers in both the United States and Europe immediately saw the existential threat this poses for them, not for Bitcoin, <laughs> for the traditional financial institutions and the power of central banks. And um, they immediately reacted. And they demonstrated very quickly one of the most important things, which is part of the lore and mythology of Bitcoin. You know, what people know about Bitcoin is that it can't be stopped. And I said at the time in June that Libra is very stoppable and therefore will not be open, borderless, global, um, and all of the things that it claimed to be. And almost immediately, the regulators demonstrated how stoppable it is. I think at this point, we can all agree that it's been stopped. Um, Zuckerberg announced, I think a week ago, that the launch plans have been postponed. Um, and a couple of the participants in the initial consortium are now reconsidering their participation. The list of countries that have said they will not allow this to exist within their borders uh, has grown uh, quite substantially. Uh, I think it's now in the two digits. I'm not even keeping track anymore because they just keep announcing new countries that say we will not allow this within our borders. This represents uh, a threat against our monetary sovereignty. And of course, the fact that they can say that demonstrates very clearly how stoppable Libra is um, and therefore immediately demonstrates the comparison to Bitcoin. Um, countries have attempted to ban Bitcoin. And as I've said before, you can take your country out of Bitcoin, but you can't take Bitcoin out of your country. So if you announce you ban Bitcoin, that doesn't mean it's no longer in your country because it's global. It simply means that you've stopped the law-abiding people from using it, um, stopped the startups, stopped the jobs, stopped the growth, stopped the opportunity of participating in this new industry and startup space. But the currency is still very much happening in your country, and it's happening underground in the gray markets and the black markets and by people who are less inclined to follow a ban. So 
that's a very big contrast with what happens when the government says we ban Libra in our country, because the, the simple truth is that it can't be used in an underground manner. And the governments of these countries can take action against uh, a, a centralized corporation that has a jurisdictional presence and footprint and can be sued and coerced and um, disconnected from banking licenses and all of these things. So, you know, Libra demonstrated that it is stoppable. Um, and now they're negotiating how to create the necessary compromise to be allowed to operate in different countries. And what that demonstrates is that they're going to start compromising on all of the other principles we talked about. Libra will not be neutral or immutable or censorship resistant or open or um, surveillance free, private, you know, um, because they can't, because all of those things they have to compromise on. So what do they become? They become PayPal. Uh, now, this is not as simple as PayPal, because this is PayPal on a Facebook scale, which is going to be much bigger. Um, and it's going to have a, an enormous impact, of course. But it doesn't really change Bitcoin or the trajectory of Bitcoin because it's competing for a completely different market. It's competing against PayPal, but also against Venmo and Zello and the various other banking facilities that banks offer. For banks, competing against Facebook is a nightmare. Now, the second part of your question is why does Facebook do this? It's really, really simple. Right now, Facebook is having a very hard time monetizing content because the monetization of content requires them to make very difficult decisions about content. Well, Libra represents for them the monetization of money, and it's a hell of a lot easier to monetize money than it is to monetize content. So if they can take their existing user base and gracefully pivot into being one of the world's largest banks overnight um, and competing against the world's largest banks only on the things that they're best at, which is technology, and which banks are arguably very good at. Um, they have more clout, more reach, more lawyers, uh, more regulatory pressure they can apply, and they can get much further than banks can. That should terrify banks. And that's also a very good reason why Facebook is doing this, because this will be immensely profitable for them. This is a trillion dollar business, potentially, if they pull it off. Um, but, you know, once again, it's not Bitcoin, and it will never be an open public blockchain. You're leading me directly, though, into what my real concern is, right? Because you've just revealed Libra as a pretender, as the sort of thing that can be stopped or surveilled or controlled. Um, and this can be done by the governments that Libra is operating within their jurisdictions. So here's the problem. What happens when these same governments decide, okay, to compete with Libra or to compete with Bitcoin or any other digital currency, we need our own. We need a government-sanctioned, government-backed, government-controlled digital currency. It lives within our borders. Uh, it's you know something that we can completely control. And that is now the value prop for the government. Now, that's not, again, a competitor necessarily, but it's something far scarier to me when it comes to- It's another pretender. It's another pretender, but let's talk about what the consequences there would be. I could see how Libra would fall apart and never launch. But with all these reports, let's say, around China, 
for example, launching their own digital currency. What are the consequences for people in these countries if central banks and governments decide to go down this road and enforce the use of their own digital currencies within their borders? Well, the the simple answer is that only criminals will be free. Um, That's the most simple answer I can give you. When the use of free money becomes criminal because the governments will prohibit the use of anything but their own digital currency, then the only free people are the criminals. And the people of Hong Kong have already experienced that, uh, which is fascinating to, to watch and at the same time terrifying to watch. But we were heading down this road with or without Bitcoin. For the past uh, 40 years, governments have gradually been moving down the road of digitization of money and, more importantly, a parallel eradication of cash. And they've been dreaming this dream of having a cashless society in which all financial transactions flow through a centralized digital and surveilled government currency. Now, this can only be achieved really and effectively in a totalitarian dictatorship because total control over finance is totalitarian. And you can only impose that on people by removing all alternatives, mandating its use, banning all alternatives, and applying very, very stiff enforcement and penalties. And totalitarian governments will do that. You know, fascists will fash. <laughs> and, and that's what's happening in, in China. It's, it's an inevitable um, and highly predictable and obvious next step in their march towards a modern digital surveillance um, fascist society. The the path has been clear. The steps have been followed uh, very, very clearly. And what's emerging is this uh, super modern, automated, AI-driven surveillance and control society that is fundamentally anti-human, mechanistic, and fascist. The question is, how many governments go down that path and what can we do to resist? Digital cash or digital money in a completely cashless society where there is no physical cash, where the only access to money is digital, um, has been in our future for the past 30 years. Uh, It was obvious that every government in the world would head down this path. The question is, what forms of digital cash will exist? We are at a fork in the road where there's two possibilities. One possibility is that the only digital cash that exists is government-controlled surveillance money that uh, essentially gives uh, any dictator or within one wrong election, any previously democratic country, uh, the ability to control political opposition, shut down uh, political activism, and end democracy at the turn of a switch, or end dissent um, by flipping a bit. Um, So that's in our future. That's one possible path. And the other possible path is to have digital money of the people, for the people, by the people, that is anonymous and surveillance-free, neutral, borderless, open, accessible, immutable, and censor-persistent. Of course, in order to do that, we're have we're going to have to face the fact that that is in direct conflict with this totalitarian uh, dystopia that that governments are planning for us. We're set up for a fight. It's a fight worth fighting, uh, just like.
previous generations had to fight against uh, totalitarianism on the left and totalitarianism on the right. This generation is going to be called to fight again. And the fight is on a different realm. Um, this is now the Internet era, and the fight happens on the Internet, not necessarily just on the streets. Um, in many ways, that's what Bitcoin represents. It represents the other option, the option that isn't fascist. I love that definition around you know Bitcoin of, of very clearly what it isn't, right? It's standing in stark contrast to this possible dystopian future of total surveillance that you've described. Uh, but let's talk about a concern that you raised earlier in this conversation, which is that when you were first presenting Bitcoin, right, it was sort of a blank slate. People didn't understand it. There was no preconceived notions about what Bitcoin was or what it meant to people uh, back in the early 2010s. Now here we are, you know, near the turn of the decade, and people have formed a lot of assumptions and a lot of their own ideas around Bitcoin. And as you said, one of those things is they associate it with getting rich quick or or like um, something mm -hmm. underhanded. And it's, at least from my perspective, fracturing what would be this sort of coherent resistance against uh, a very clear threat, which is not confused at all about its identity, right? Like the, the end game for central banks is very clear and they all seem in agreement about what that should look like. But there seems to be some fracturing on the side of people who are advocates for permissionless, censorship-resistant digital currencies. And I feel like you've done a tremendous job in trying to keep the ethos of the industry and in, in building communities of people who uphold that ethos around this like core ideal of remaining censorship-resistant and remaining permissionless. But do you feel like it's getting better? Or do you feel like just when, like I do when I open Twitter some days, do you feel like in some ways we're getting further away from having, uh, from being hand in hand essentially on, on having a united front against this, what I consider to be perhaps the only existential threat that matters? Well, I think the, the bottom line is the, from the very beginning, we've been talking about mainstream adoption. And I, I said this back in 2013, I think, during my first, very first talk uh, about uh, at a conference where I talked about the importance of neutrality in the space, but also the fact that as this technology goes mainstream, the fundamental principles get diluted. And they get diluted both by people who um, can't see the bigger picture and do not particularly care about the bigger picture, who have the comfort of liberty, the privilege of liberty, uh, the entitlement um, to be able to ignore the, the five, six billion unbanked, the people who lived in dictatorships, because they don't. Um, the people who have no access to financial services because they do have access to financial services. Or as Jamie Dimon said recently, the head of JP Morgan Chase, he said, I, I, I see no use for, for Bitcoin. Of course you don't. Um, but, but then again, you also see no use for supermarkets because you've never been in one. Like um, none of your friends have ever been denied access to a bank account. None of your friends have ever been robbed by a banker. None of your friends have been restricted in their ability to invest. Um, it wasn't made for you, Mr. Diamond. Um, you represent 
the most privileged of the most privileged. Um, the truth of the matter is that for some people, this doesn't matter, right? And if, if, you, if you live in a country where you still have enough freedom to be able to ignore the, the nasty um, consequences of, of, you know, globalization, uh, extremism, totalitarianism, dictators, war, et cetera, that are happening to other people, that's great. Um, not a very moral life to live, but at, at least you have the privilege to ignore those things. But the point is, first of all, fewer and fewer people have that, right? So the circle is closing. More and more people are falling out of the middle class. Uh, more and more countries are um, eroding or eradicating the democratic institutions and getting closer and closer to um, various forms of, of totalitarianism. So unfortunately, more and more people will get to live the reality of the other five billion. Um, secondly, you know, as, as we go more mainstream and the principles get diluted, one of the reasons they get diluted is because there are always opportunists who will want to exploit, um, uh, a fad, a narrative, um, a new technology, and their only interest is enriching themselves. So in that case, what do they do? The fastest path to riches is to find something um, that is on the fringes of regulation, uh, make a deal with a regulator, buy a politician, cozy up to the status quo, and be like, you know, those people over there who are disruptive and, and you know, anarchists and whatever, and you just badmouth them accordingly. Um, who don't want to follow the rules. We're not like them. We're happy to follow the rules. We just want some accommodation. And you negotiate a compromise. You compromise with evil. You make, you make a deal that says, um, we're not looking to disrupt the system. We're not looking to um, change the architecture of the system. We just want to replace the, you know, the people at the top with ourselves and quite happy with the structure as it is. Um, and we've seen that in crypto. There's a lot of people who say, well, wouldn't it be better if instead of trying to fight, we work with the regulators? Um, and in, in doing so, discard some of the principles. And one of the things I love about Facebook's Libra is that it's brought a player to the game that have the, has the resources without any of the ethics. Um, they don't have any principles. Uh, and they have billions. So. What's interesting now is that all of the other pretenders who are trying to kind of position themselves and cozy up to regulators and have decided to discard principles to compete are now facing a competitor whose entire business model is to discard principles faster than anybody else and to have none, right? They're absolutely ruthless. They're amoral, uh, not immoral, um, Amoral. They have no moral code. They're, they have one and only one goal, and that's maximize shareholder profit, right? And so, when you're driven by that and you have no principles, it's a lot easier with to 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 get uh, a competitive position. All of those other systems that have decided to discard some of their principles cannot compete with Facebook on that basis. In fact, the only thing that can compete is maintaining your principles um, because that's differentiation.
otherwise, you know, you're just a smaller, less funded, unethical competitor or pretender. That is such an interesting point to think about is that people who tried to split the difference here, take the middle road, are now finding themselves crowded out, you know, yep. on both the the idea of like the race to the bottom on ethics and the race to the top on you know, having the resources to pursue the goal. But then I have a question for you, like, and I do this all the time myself, like refer to Facebook as a single entity or institution. And in some senses, you know, obviously it is, uh, but it is also a collection of people. And there's people who have to build the thing. And somebody wrote the white paper and somebody's going to be having to work on the code somewhere, assuming that it gets to that point of production. So, in a sense, there's always this opportunity, right, as the pieces move around. Some of the more uh, morally inclined people within these types of organizations could find themselves magnetically attracted to the types of open protocols that you have been describing, you know, for your entire career, but also on this uh, short interview, right? Like, isn't there an opportunity to sort of continue to pull people over into the side of the light? Uh, And if you believe that, you know, there is still an opportunity to, you know, I'm not going to say save souls here. Uh, and they chose to work at Facebook. You know, it's it was their own free choice. I, I begrudge them nothing. But what do you think it's going to take to pull people back over onto this side that you're talking about? Because if you are describing a coming fight, we want to have people with these skills and with these ethics on our side, not trapped within the organizations that would do everything they can to co-opt those skills while crushing their ethics. Well, I mean, they are trapped within those organizations, and that's that's the story of innovation and has been for centuries. The bottom line is that um, these large organizations that where you have a diffusion of responsibility, where decision-making is made at so many different layers, where no one has control, no one has responsibility, no one has accountability, is just kind of this gray that just permeates the organization. Um, People who have principles, uh, people who want to take moral stances, are crowded out by the institutional inertia. They cannot change the system because the system is 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 designed to well, it's not designed but it has the side effect of grinding them down so they either make um a thousand tiny compromises until they can no longer recognize what their principles are um or they leave uh because no matter what kind of change they try to introduce in, in a company like that just like writing this white paper and putting in this white paper all of these really quite progressive decentralized ideas, which they mostly copied from a bunch of other projects and cobbled together. But, you know, it's admirable that they had the gumption to try. Um, If this ever became a product in any way, shape or form, um, all of these sharp edges would be ground off until eventually it's just a gray corporate shell that has none of the innovative features. and their idea would would be smothered by by the corporate machine. So then they have a choice. They can either uh, try to say, okay, we have more resources here, so we're going to compromise a bit and stay and fight the fight from within the system, which has always been the, the fundamental rationalizing excuse, um, but never works, right? History is full of examples. 
um, or they leave and they and they try to take a stance and set up some principles and start a startup. And I've had countless conversations with people from within the banking sector who banged their head against the wall for two years trying to make uh, an organization um, change its ways uh, and change its direction and 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 go on the side of innovation and adopt principles, etc. But it all of their ideas get so diluted. By the end of it, they get demoralized and they either give up and just earn a paycheck or they leave. And so many of them have come over to the light, eventually taking their December bonus package and starting a startup that competes directly against their um, their mothership uh, on the 1st of January. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that story. I used to work at X big bank, had tried for two years as the head of blockchain to introduce innovation and get them to understand why these things matter. And it was impossible. And then I took my bonus check and started a, a, a blockchain startup, a Bitcoin startup, an Ethereum startup, whatever. That's what's going to happen. Um, you know, the, the people who have creativity and principles and innovation will find their way because they're going to see the difference. I'm encouraged by that. And obviously, you've had a lot more of these conversations in your role than I do with my day job. You know, I, I'm, I'm sort of heads down on one project and, and you get to take this great broad perspective. And I think mm -hmm. one example of that is you wrote this wonderful book recently, Mastering Ethereum with Gavin Wood. And I think that the reaction in the community is is a little bit instructive because I thought it was obviously a fantastic thing to do. Um, some people didn't see it that way. They almost saw it as a betrayal of, of Bitcoin <laughs> somehow. Not a betrayal of the principles, of course, and not a betrayal of the ethos, but somehow that you had betrayed the, the concept of Bitcoin. And I know that there's this idea of maximalism that you're very familiar with, but from everything you're describing, it seems like maximalism might be uh, another trap, another temptation that we need to avoid if we're going to really understand what the real threats are. So can you talk a little bit about why you chose to write that book and what you think of the reaction since and whether you think actually people have come around and, and understood your, your vision behind pursuing that project? I wrote Mastering Ethereum because I was fascinated by the concept of Turing complete programmable blockchains that have a general purpose platform approach um, that is flexible and um, can move a lot faster than Bitcoin. And I understood from a very early stage that Ethereum and Bitcoin do not compete. Um, they occupy two completely different niches. Those niches overlap only slightly. And while some in both tribes, if you like, will claim that they can do everything that the other can do, that's simply not true in my mind. They, they can't, and if they try to, they fail. Um, Bitcoin can't do flexible smart contracts um, because in order to do so, it would have to sacrifice some of its capabilities of doing very, very secure, robust, sound money, which requires very conservative development. And on the other side, Ethereum can't do very, very secure, robust, sound money, and it, and it needs that as an infrastructure. Um, because 
to do that, it has to really slow down its development and reduce its flexibility. So they occupy different niches, um, just like, uh, and I've used this example many times before, you know, an agricultural tractor and a NASCAR racing car. Um, and you can argue one is better than the other, but it depends entirely on what you're trying to do with it. The bottom line is that I never saw them as competing, and I am very confident in each uh, uh, each idea being able to bring forth some new innovation and enrich the ecosystem. My eye is on the status quo, um, the the status quo industry of institutionalized money in the form of a giant international cartel with corrupt democracy. That is the the competitor to all of these platforms. And um, for me, that competitor can only be taken on with a broad approach that addresses many different application niches, and that requires a lot of experimentation and, in many cases, a lot of diversity of thought and um, diversity of approaches. So I'm not scared of having an ecosystem. In fact, I think that's a healthy approach to developing this space, and it all helps um, undermine the global banking cartel and its corrosive effect on society. But most importantly, I wrote Mastering Ethereum because I wanted to learn. That's always been the reason that I get involved in technology. I learn first by experimenting and then by trying to explain and teach. That's my learning style. I wrote Mastering Bitcoin for that reason, to learn Bitcoin in more depth. And, and, and now I know uh, much more about Ethereum than I did when I started writing the book, and I gained a lot from it. And it wasn't about how to invest in this platform or whether this platform will win uh, or whether it was correctly in, initiated and uh, you know launched and uh, et cetera. That's not what it's about. It's about um, whether that concept can deliver some different types of applications that are very important uh, and very different from what Bitcoin can do. And I still believe that firmly. Yeah, and I have to empathize with you because I have a very self-serving reason for having a podcast, which is I get to talk to people who are much smarter than me, who have written books about things that I wish I could understand as well as them. And then they kind of give me summaries and I start to understand things a little bit better than I did when I started talking to them. And still nowhere near as much, but at least that motivates me to record the next episode and, and learn a bit more. So, you know, yeah. I, I, I think that motivation is healthy and helpful. Yeah, I had a lot of uh, much smarter people teach me a lot about Ethereum by um, telling them I'm writing a book. Um, you know, the reaction of the community, um, I think maximalism is is a culture of fear. Uh, and it is strongest uh, when the retrenchment is happening, where the market is on a down cycle. And it's, it represents kind of the circling of the wagons, the closing of ranks, the purity tests, and the infighting that happens in a community that is being attacked. It's a, it's a reaction that I think stems primarily from uncertainty and fear. I do not need to defend Bitcoin on the pulpit uh, in order to for Bitcoin to be successful or to... Um, attack or um, reveal uh, the pretenders in order to make it successful, because I 
fully believe, and I'm very confident that uh, Bitcoin does its thing because it's good technology and people need it, and it doesn't need anyone defending it. I'm very confident in Bitcoin, and I don't think Ethereum threatens it at all. Uh, I think maximalists are less certain of that, and I think that's why they they feel the need to um, attack anyone who even is interested in other things. If this is going to be a system of uh, litmus tests and doctrine where you are discouraged from intellectual curiosity, to me that's not science, that's religion. I'm not interested in religion. Um, and I'm not going to follow the religion of Bitcoin. I'm interested in the technology and social implications of Bitcoin um, because it works, and I'm very confident in that. And quite honestly, if Bitcoin didn't work, um, I'm quite confident that we would rebuild something else that worked even better. And I'm not really worried about Bitcoin uh, being uh, having competition from other cryptocurrencies. I have to agree, and and honestly, it has been a struggle, uh, even you know, in my day job here at Enigma, because it's been a, a few years of sort of contracting growth for the space at large. Where, you know, whether you measure it by price or by Google Trends or you know the volume of posts on your forums or whatever it is, like it, it almost feels like people are getting, in some senses, scared to interact or scared to. Uh, express anything that isn't absolute certainty about the positions that they already had at the beginning of that week or that month or that year. And I think you're right that if if we're going to be putting on some sort of united front and, and working against these threats that, that are very real, now more real than ever, uh, it, you, you know, we can't be coming from a place of fear about those threats or fear of each other. We have to have a hope that the world that we're building in the future can be something that preserves privacy and human rights that enables us to build things that, you know, would be otherwise repressed or suppressed and, and things that really increase our freedom as individuals. And I I I think again to in closing that in in the course of this decade you've proven to be uh maybe the most masterful bridge builder in this space, not just building bridges between the communities that exist, but also bridges from the outside world into these communities. Not just so that people in the space can relate to the outside world, but also so that new people can peek in and maybe, you know, escape with their December bonus and become the builders that we really need uh, if we're going to have another wave and we're and we're going to succeed. Thank you. I mean, that, that's been my mission from the very beginning. I feel that if we are to succeed, we need to do two things. One is educate developers, because when you're bootstrapping uh, a technological infrastructure, industry, ecosystem, whatever you want to call it, which is primarily based on open source with a lot of volunteer developers, um, we need as many developers as possible, literally uh, hundreds of thousands of software developers over the next decades uh, to build all of the things that are going to be built on the Internet of Money. Uh, as I like to call it. So in order to do that, we need to educate as many developers. So my goal from the beginning in that respect has been to provide quality neutral education in as many languages as possible, in as many languages, and sorry, in as many countries as possible, and if at all possible, for free under open source licenses. Um, you know, and both Mastering Bitcoin and Mastering Ethereum have filled that goal. But the other part of it is educating the public at large, not on 
just how this technology works, but why it's important. What are the underlying principles? What attracts people like me, or what attracted me at least, to this? And um, defending those principles and making them as clear as possible so that we can continue building uh, a community that once they see and understand these principles can cherish and defend them and differentiate them uh, and explain them to the next wave. And again, to do that in as many languages as possible, in as many countries as possible, for as many people as possible. You know, I, I sometimes get a lot of pushback, and this is a, a, a this is a space that has a lot of drama that I try to stay out of. Well, you know, in, a month ago, I announced my next book at the at the conference that I just had in Denver. My next book, which is Mastering the Lightning Network, uh, which will be my third O'Reilly Media book I'm doing with two collaborators. It's going to be interesting to see um, how the community responds now. Uh, not that it's going to change my trajectory or progress at all, but uh, it will be interesting to see, uh, is this going to satisfy um, some of the people who were upset by my previous book or not? Um, I'm writing it for exactly the same reasons. I'm fascinated by the Lightning Network. I want to learn more. I want to learn deeper, and I want to help others learn about it. And so I'm writing another book about it. I'm going to make some new unfriends in the in the process um, who are offended by this uh, direction of my intellectual curiosity. Um, I'm not particularly concerned about that. Um, and, you know, the, the journey continues. I, I feel incredibly privileged to to be able to work in this space. And I, I love that I get to do what I love and get enormous support from the community to continue to do it. Absolutely. And uh, at least speaking for myself, I know that it's the magnitude of your enthusiasm, not its directionality that <laughs> maintains <laughs> the great work that you do. So Andreas, I... I Thank you again for taking all the time to come on to decentralize this and explain some of your ethos and, and some of the work that you've done to uh, preserve it in uh, in a space where I think, as you said, it, it can be diluted. It can be difficult to grasp, especially when uh, people can have a tendency to be depressed by how long it sometimes takes to achieve things or, or how over-resourced competitors, whether they be Facebook or governments, you know, however that may be, uh, I, I think that you're doing very important work, and I would encourage our audience to go and look at more of Andreas's work, his writing, and his and his speaking. I'm going to include the links in the podcast episode description. Uh, but again, Andreas, I really appreciate you taking the time, and best of luck as you continue your exploration and your education. It's excellent work. Thank you so much, Tor, and best of luck on your continued work on this podcast. Uh, I'm enjoying it, and I hope others will too.